finally sent his son Christ to the earth in human form. And that begins the New Testament phase of the confrontation between God and Satan. Christ's mission was to destroy or to restore man from what Satan had made him to be to what God originally intended for man to be. Thereafter, it was God's purpose to protect man against the further efforts of Satan to destroy him. Now we see where we enter this field of interaction in the great spiritual drama. We become involved as participants, either as agents of Satan against God or as agents of God against Satan, one or the other, nothing in between. At this point, it's necessary that I change terminology somewhat. I've been using the words opposition, confrontation, spiritual interaction, but now I'm going to start using the terms war, warfare, and battle, the usual terms of military combat because that is what this is. It is real combat. This is truly a great war between Satan and God and between good and evil. It is a war that has an unseen spiritual field of action and this visible physical field of action where we are. Now these words uh, unse are seen and invisible. I mean to our human vision, to what we can see in this material or physical dimension of existence that we're in. We cannot see what God what uh, goes on over there in the spiritual world. We know about it only from what is revealed to us in the Bible. But we can see and can personally experience what's going on in the physical world. Relatively few people realize that world events that are happening every day are a very real part of this great warfare and they do not realize that we are involved in it, but everyone has his day with Satan. And that day is every day that you are alive and breathing. Everyone is either a soldier in Satan's army or a soldier in the army of God. And again, there's nothing in between. It's the objective of this course and especially of my presentation tonight, to make this warfare apparent and real in our personal lives. We must know about it, and we must choose the correct side in this spiritual contest. No one ever wants to be on the losing side in a contest. It's tragic to pass through the world on the losing side and suffer the shame of being a prisoner of war for eternity thereafter. It's ultimately critical that everyone on earth know about this. Folks, there's no one, there's nothing I could talk to you about tonight about, or anybody else could, that's more serious and relevant than this. It's really what life here is all about. 
and the eternal consequences are serious in the extreme. I said earlier that the war that I have been describing is an unseen spiritual field of action, but it also has a physical, visible field of action. I might rephrase this as a war whose battlefield is both over there in the spiritual world and here in our physical world. Furthermore, what happens over there on the spiritual side of the battle has a counteracting or a resulting effect here in our earthly side. Now we only know about this relation from what is revealed to us in the Bible. There is a remarkable chapter in the Bible that exactly describes ex what I have been speaking to you about thus far. It begins with a scene between Christ and Satan in the spiritual world, and then it shifts to the earth and to the continuation of that warfare here. And in the earthly area of the combat, we're shown where people become involved. And folks, that's you and me personally, not somebody somewhere else. In the next part of my presentation, I'm going to take you to that chapter, and we're going to see what it describes. So if you will, go with me there. It is the 12th chapter of Revelation. It begins in verses 1 and 2 as follows. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of seven stars, and she was with child, and she cried out, being in pain and in labor, to give birth. To interpret this chapter and to show why I'm using it in this lesson on our spiritual warfare, I'm first just going to scan it and make only enough necessary comments to get through it. Then I'll briefly at the end show its interpretation and its application in this lesson on our spiritual warfare. As I begin, let me emphasize that this is a vision. It is not something that John saw in our physical world. It does, however, so that we can make sense of it, use physical images. The sky or the heaven, the woman, the sun, the moon, a crown, and some stars. We know about all those things. In trying to understand what any vision means, this one or any other, we must try not to determine what every single detail in it represents. Many details do nothing more than provide the background against which the main feature is being presented. And the main feature in these two verses here is a woman who is about to give birth. The next, or the fact that John saw her in the sky simply indicates this is a scene in the spiritual world. It's not here on our earth. In verses 3 and 4 then, a second feature enters the scene. It reads, Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon 
having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems, and his tail swept away a third of the stars of the heaven and drew them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth he might destroy her child. The main feature here is this terrible red dragon waiting before this woman to destroy her child just as soon as it is born. The dragon, therefore, has extreme animosity toward this child, and he is exceedingly urgent to, to destroy it. In a study of Revelation itself, I could give you the meaning to these seven heads, as I did this time last year, the ten horns and the diadems, but in this study tonight, that's unnecessary. The vision then proceeds in verses 5 and 6 in these words. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that she might be nourished for 1260 days. Here we are told four things. One, the birth of this child, which was a male. Second, he is destined to rule all nations, absolutely. Third, the dragon fails to kill him because God takes him up to heaven. Fourth, the woman flees into the wilderness where she is protected by God for 1260 days. Folks, there is very great significance in these three verses. But in this lesson, I'll have to summarize it briefly, which I will do in just a few minutes. The scene now progresses uh, to verses 7, 8, and 9. There was war in heaven, Michael and his angels, waging war with the dragon. And the dragon and his angels waged war, but they were not strong enough and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels with him. These are the key verses in this chapter for which I am now dealing with it tonight. It pictures a war in heaven, and as I said, that means in the spiritual world. The opposing sides are led by Michael, who is an angel of God, I think an archangel, and this dragon, who is clearly identified as Satan. Each has with him his own army of angels, the good ones and the bad ones, Satan loses his battle and he is cast down to the earth with all of his angels. And that's the focal point of this chapter for our study and application tonight because it depicts the warfare beginning in the spiritual world but shifting down into this physical world, the earth. As Christians, we are inevitably engaged in spiritual warfare because of what this feature of the vision shows. Every human being is involved in it, 
whether they know about it or not, whether they care about it or not, whether they ever pay any attention to it or not, they're in the middle of it. We're all involved in it. Satan has been cast down into this world with his army of demonic angels. Satan is furious over the loss that he experienced in the spiritual world and his demotion. And he takes out his fury upon people and above all, the people such as we are tonight who are trying to serve God the best we can. We're Satan's number one prime select target. Now in verses 10 through 12, we have an interlude in the vision showing the triumphant rejoicing in heaven over Satan's defeat and God's great victory. And that'll help us a little later in interpreting this vision. Now we come to verses 13 through 16, which carries this vision to its conclusion. It says, And when the, wagon, the dragon saw that he was cast down to the earth, he persecuted the child, I mean the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the two wings of an eagle were given to the woman in order that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time and times and half a time. That sounds puzzling, but that's the same as 1260 days. And there she's protected from the presence of the serpent. But as she was flying into the wilderness, it says, verse 15, the serpent poured after her water like a river out of his mouth after the woman so that he might cause her to be swept away from the earth. But the earth opened its mouth and helped the woman, drinking up the river with the, which the dragon poured out of its mouth. The dragon in his rage turns upon this woman with severe persecution, all that he can bring against her. But she was rescued, as we just read, by being given the wings of an eagle to fly into the wilderness. And the earth helps her by opening its mouth to drink this flood that the dragon sends after her. It's important to see here that in spite of Satan's very greatest efforts, he could not destroy this woman. Why? God was taking care of her. God is concerned about this woman very deeply, and he's taking care of her. Satan can do his best. He might cause pain, distress, and whatever, but he cannot conquer. The vision then concludes in Revelation 12, 17, and the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring who kept the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. The dragon who is Satan has suffered three great defeats. First, his failure to destroy the woman's male child when it was born. Second, his defeat up there in the heavens by Michael and being then cast down to the earth with force. And third, his failure to kill this woman 
who had brought forth the child. The only thing left now for him to attack in this picture, this vision, is the woman's offspring. And so in his great rage, it says he went off to make war on them. And folks, that part of the vision does not end in Revelation 12. It goes right on through time. It's still going now. In the interpretation of this chapter, it is tempting to most people, and here's where they start, stop with it, is to say, the woman is Mary because she gave birth to Jesus. Of course she did, but folks, there's a conflict here, two conflicts. Number one, it conflicts with her being up in heaven. And number two, it conflicts with what is said about her. In verses 14 through 17, those don't fit Mary. So what does this woman represent? Something you know about, the church. There is a sense in which the church does bring forth Jesus. And that is whenever it preaches Christ in his gospel and introduces him into the lives of converts. Folks, every time we have a meeting and preach the gospel from this pulpit, we're bringing forth Christ to people who, who do not know him or do not know him very well. Paul, in fact, uses this very exact same precise idea when he said to the unfaithful Christians in Galatia, my children, listen, my children, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. Galatians 4.19. Paul was bringing forth in his church work Christ into the lives of people. The church was severely persecuted by Satan through the Roman government for three long centuries or almost that long, and it was only by the providence of God that it was not destroyed. The woman being given the wings of, a, of, of an eagle to fly into the wilderness and the earth opening up its mouth to, to swallow the, the dragon's flood are just symbols of God's providence taking care of his church. The male child is definitely Jesus, he is the only one who has been caught up to God's very throne in heaven. But it wasn't when he was a little baby. It was when he was a grown man and it completed his mission to the earth. In verse 17, when we read of this woman's offspring who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus, we're looking at Christians. Folks, this is where you and I are in this vision. Did you know you're in this vision? If you're a Christian, you're in the vision. When it says that the dragon makes war with the rest of her children, uh, her offspring, folks, that's a very, very brief description of our physical warfare because Satan could not overcome Jesus and cannot destroy his church. He can and he does goes after every Christian who is trying to be faithful and loyal and a child of God. Satan is filled with hate with God for God. He is filled with hate for Christ. He is filled with hate for his church. And he is filled with hate for every Christian. Folks, there's somebody that hates you as a Christian. And I mean hates you bitterly. 
and wants to destroy you. And that's Satan. He wants to destroy us all. He never gives up in this effort. He will continue it till the last day of time when he is destroyed. And folks, Satan comes at us every way he can. And that's what this series of lessons is all about, this quarter, to reveal several of those ways and to teach us how to save ourselves from this malicious, vicious dragon. If you don't put forth the effort, you're his. That is the warning that is given in 1 Peter 5 and verse 8. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, but resist him firm in the faith. Folks, what is your business every day you're breathing as a Christian? To resist Satan firm in your faith. You can't take a holiday from it. You can't sleep on it. You've got to be doing it all the time because he's working all the time. All you need to do is relax, turn your attention somewhere else. He's got his hook on you. Peter here recasts Satan as a lion rather than a great red dragon. But whether a dragon or a lion, it doesn't make any difference. He's out there. He's in here. Folks, every time we meet, Satan is in this room with us. Believe it. He's always near us. And we absolutely must resist him firm in the faith. In my career, I have seen Satan manifest himself very boldly during a church service. In the time that remains, we're going to consider another passage that boldly speaks of our spiritual warfare as Christians. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 5. 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 5. There it says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. This begins by saying that Christians walk in the flesh, which is set in contrast to an expression in the next verse according to the flesh. Folks, sometimes you have to pay very careful attention to slight nuances of meaning in words that we ordinarily just read across at speed and don't even notice. To walk in the flesh and walk according to the flesh are different. The phrase in the flesh in the New Testament simply means in the, the physical life that we have in this body or in a human body. When you're through walking in the flesh, we carry you out here to the cemetery and bury you. But to walk according to the flesh <clears throat> has a spiritual meaning. It means, listen carefully, it means to live as, is, as if this earth life is all there is and all that matters. 
Critics of Paul and his associates in Corinth were claiming that that is what they were doing, living worldly and not spiritually. He freely confesses that they were living spiritual lives. I mean, if you can meet somebody and speak to them and shake hands and so forth, they're in the flesh, you're in the flesh. That's evident. But he denies that the Christians in Corinth were living worldly, non-spiritual lives. That is, lives that were given over to passion and lust. Now, they were tempted in that direction. And Paul was doing all he could to, with these letters and his preaching before them in person to hold them back from that. And this immediately leads Paul into the subject of our lesson tonight, the subject of spiritual warfare. Rather than being friendly with this world of lust and sinful gratification, he says real Christians are opposed to it and they are at war with it. We do not compromise. We do not make peace with it. We don't look over here while it's going on over there and pretend it doesn't matter. But he emphasizes that this is not war according to the flesh. That is, it is not physical war. Physical war is fought with physical weapons, pitched bloody battles that involve killing, maiming, mass destruction of property. What's going on every day now in the Ukraine? Men wage war that involves such battles. They always have since the beginning of time nearly. And they use every physical weapon that's been invented. The latest one that can kill the most, that can destroy the most, and a second is the one that is preferred. But such weapons only kill and destroy because of the men that use them. Folks, I have some weapons at home that have never killed anybody. And by me, they will never kill anybody. Weapons don't. It's the people that use them. And they use them, why? Because of sinful emotions and passions that rule in their heart. If the Lord really is ruling in the heart, the person will not fight. The way to correct killing with weapons is to change people's lives within. This is clearly stated in James 4, 1 and 2. So many times things we puzzle about and argue about and go back and forth about <clears throat> is made very explicit in the scriptures. It's just that people won't look, look at them. But in James 4, verses 1 and 2, it starts by saying, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Then he says, is it not, is or is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members, in your physical being? You lust, but do not have, so you commit murder to get it. You're envious and cannot obtain, but you try to get it anyway by quarreling and fighting. That's inspired scripture. Paul then emphasizes that the real warfare to wage is within the mind, within the heart of man. 
Folks, this is spiritual warfare. If the battle is won there, the mind and the heart, a triumph of truth and righteousness and submission to Christ will follow, and there will be no physical war. Real, dedicated Christians who have Christ in their heart are not the cause of the trouble in this world. In verse 4, we're told that our weapons of warfare are not the, the physical ones used in earthly battle, but spiritual ones. But it says that spiritually they are divinely powerful. These arms are named in Galatians chapter 6, verses 14 through 7. 17, rather. There are seven, six of them. A girdle of truth a breastplate of righteousness, shoes of the gospel of peace, a shield of faith, number five, the helmet of salvation, and six, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Notice that the first five of those implements are defensive. You don't use them against anybody, you use them to protect yourself. Only one is offensive, the last one, and its purpose and it is the Word of God. Its purpose is never, never, never to do physical harm. Its purpose is one, to destroy the works of Satan, and two, to save the souls of people. The function of this spiritual sword is further described in Hebrews 4, verses 1 and 2. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword piercing as far as the division of the soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You could take an 18-inch dagger and run it right through the middle of your body and you'd quit living. It would divide the necessary functions of your body and stop its, its life, but it could not divide between thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Word of God can and does. We must use it to that purpose. In earthly physical warfare, the objective is to kill and to injure as many of the enemy as possible, to destroy as much of his property and means of support as possible. In modern terms, that is called total war. It began during the Civil War with Sherman in Georgia and Sheridan in the Shenandoah Valley. That was when the term was invented. In Christian spiritual warfare, however, it is never ever the, pub, the purpose to inflict injury, to take human life, or destroy property. Our goal is the same as that of Jesus. And he said in Luke 9 and verse 56 that the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. That's your job, my job, the church's job. Save people's lives, save their souls, and not to harm anybody. In 2 Corinthians 10, Paul here in verses 4 through 6 lists the weapons of our spiritual warfare. And there are about four of them. One, to destroy fortresses. Two, to destroy speculations. Three, 
to destroy every lofty thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God and for to capture every thought to the obedience of Christ. And yes, there is a fifth one, to punish all disobedience. These three verses, folks, employ a number of terms which in the original Greek are purely military jargon. If I had the time as in a study of Revelation, I'd introduce each one of them and explain them, but we don't have time to do that here tonight. Wouldn't mean that much anyway. But the way that Paul uses them here is strictly in the sphere of the human mind and thought because that's where spiritual warfare is waged. If the objectives listed here are accomplished, war on earth will cease. Remember what I said? When something happens on the spiritual side of things and really happens, something comparable or contiguous to it happens here in the physical world. This is just one demonstration. But of course, stopping wars on this earth we live on will never end. For Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 6, you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not affrightened because these things must, must take place. Just means they're going to. The world is too sinful to stop it in general. That does not mean that we're to give up and to cease in the struggle. To the contrary, our spiritual warfare is absolutely 100% necessary because by it, great good can be accomplished even if we cannot stop all, I mean, solve all the world's problems and produce peace and a good life for everybody. By constant, unremitting struggle, we can do these things. The first one is so important. Save your own soul. Two, really just as important, save the souls of people about you. Don't watch nonchalantly as people go to hell because they don't know what they're doing, don't care. Try to change them. Third, glorify God in times of victory. Folks, there's victories for good that has taken place in the last 24 hours. I doubt there's three people in the auditorium that knows about it tonight. We should know about it and things like that and be glorifying God when it happens. Fourth, establish areas of peace and goodness in various places and periods of time when life about us is good. God does give us sometimes little islands of peace, an oasis of peace and goodness and, 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 and fineness to last for a while, to give us relief. Well, I now must bring this lesson to its conclusion and I'm going to do it with Paul's exhortation in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 3. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Folks, I'm talking to you about something in these lessons that's as, as serious as life can get, and it will make the difference in eternity for you and me. Instead of just seeing people scattered here and there over the auditorium, I wish we could have twice this many here tomorrow night. I mean next Wednesday night. That's your challenge. Thank you.